0: I started looking for people like me that had taken this path before me and I didn't find a lot of narratives. So I started just trying to create my own and that's when I kind of decided I'd climb the seven summits. I was saying I'm going to do it to the highest point as who I am and be proud of myself for getting there.
1: That was Aaron Parisi. Erin Parisi has set out to become the first trans woman to complete the seven summits, a notorious mountaineering feat to stand atop the tallest peak on each continent. But Erin's journey is so much larger than herself. It's for all those who will come behind her, for the trans community that so desperately is seeking representation across all walks of life. By standing on top of each summit, Erin's message speaks loud and clear, I will not hide. Welcome to Unventured. Where we share inspiring stories from around the globe of the people who stepped up to break barriers, shake expectation, and reshape our future. I'm your host, Lindsay Hagen, and I'm so excited to kick off the show and share Erin Priesty's story with you. Hey Aaron, welcome to the show. Hey Lindsay. So you're in the midst of quite an unbelievable undertaking being the first trans woman to stand on top of the tallest peak on each continent. Would you mind just filling our audience in on on what that journey looked like and when you realized that the gender that you were assigned at birth wasn't necessarily matching the feelings that you were having?
0: Yeah, for me, you know, sometime between the ages of like five and eight, I started to feel uncomfortable, and just it just got the feeling got worse and worse um, as I got older. So I'd say, you know, by the time I was six or seven or so, that that I knew that something was wrong, and I kind of always figured well, you know, like maybe as I get older, this will just kind of correct itself. And um, instead, really, as I got older, um, you know, my sense of identity just got further and further kind of ingrained, I think, like it probably does for most people. And then it was probably, you know, by the time I got to be in my teens, um, I realized that I probably was going to have to figure it out on my my own that, that, you know, that's how it was going to work.
1: And how was it coming into terms with with your identity at that age? Did you have any resources or anyone to look up to? I mean, it doesn't seem like there's a instructional manual.
0: Yeah and that's what made it difficult for sure I, you know i think kids and and younger folks and I, folks of all ages who are trans today have the great resource which is the internet and not to date myself too much but that wasn't a resource when i was a kid one thing i think i was lucky to have and unlucky to have at the same time was there was a trans woman that lived in my neighborhood and she went to my church so on one hand, I very much knew early on that it was possible to change. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, I also saw kind of how the congregation, the neighborhood treated her in the 80s. And um, that was discouraging as well.
1: Tell me a little bit about where you grew up and how you grew up as a child.
0: Yeah, for sure. So growing up, I had four brothers. So definitely, you know, my family was geared around, you know, what does it look like to raise boys? Um, And there wasn't a lot of room for me to be different from kind of the, the upbringing you get with boys. And I grew up in a, um, a suburb, a working class suburb outside of um, Buffalo, New York. So I was in Western New York, um, where it's it's very Catholic and um, very blue collar. It was definitely um, lots of sports and lots of um, fish fries on Friday and uh, Sunday morning masses and that kind of stuff in my, in my um, neighborhood. And certainly this, you know, being trans wasn't in that small suburban setting. It really wasn't, um, Something I could explore, hmm.
1: bring me through i mean growing up into adulthood, where you reached the point where you decided to go down that difficult road because you couldn 't take anymore,
0: yeah, for sure, you know I, I think about kind of what it looked like to vacillate, if you will, between knowing that I had to transition and instinctually following my my heart and and you know like allowing myself to manifest and then those times when i would i would slam that door shut and say that's not a possibility so you know by the time i got a job and i was 16 or 17 and i was working i would take the the, the money that i got and i would actually buy clothes and um Makeup and and just kind of some of the other things that I think that uh, other girls were, were figuring out how to explore at the time, um, you know, kind of more openly than I was. Right. And I'd, I'd go into this place where I would I would hide it and I'd throw it away and I'd say, okay, never again. I'm not gonna, you know, and certainly my brothers can't find this out. My, you know, my parents or grandparents can't find this. So I'd go back into this place of hiding, and it wouldn't last very long. Um, it was kind of always a temporary stopgap, if you will. Here I was like a kid, I'd spend a hundred dollars and that was like all the money I had in the world. And it took me so long to save it. And I would just like, without thinking twice, just ditch everything I had gotten and all the progress I had made. As I got older, I got a little bit more sophisticated and the internet came out and I, you know, I got more resources, I suppose, or the hope that there'd be more resources I could drive to doctor's appointments on my own. And, um, you know, the first time I think I came out to a healthcare provider, I was about twenty or twenty-one and I came out to my university healthcare system figuring they could help. Right. And um even then, this is again kind of back in the nineties, they said this isn't something we do. And and they it was hard for me to go in there and actually come out and say, I need I need help. I need and it was like I remember this first time I had reached out to somebody and actually said the words and let the words pass my lips that um I needed to come out and they said, no. Um, and then they referred me to the, um, psychiatric resources at the hospital. So I I got sent to the psychology department. So, um,
1: Because they were treating it almost like a mental disorder.
0: Yeah. Yeah. They were still treating me very much like I was, you know, I had a mental, you know, there's a a mental challenge here that I had to get over and not, you know, some sort of psychiatric challenge and not, not just a medical challenge because, um, Wow. So yeah, that was discouraging. I kind of i i never made that drive over to the psychology department. I just said okay, I get it, and um, kind of went back into that place of denial or that place of you know um, suppression.
1: Right. So then you you get pretty involved in the outdoor space, and it seems like you really start leaning into the outdoors, the mountains, being active in the outdoors as a as a coping mechanism. Can you tell me a bit about the role that the outdoors played in your in your transition, your identity.
0: Yeah, kind of after you know, I would roamed into that university medical system and kind of around that same time where I realized that I needed a distraction. I needed something else to pour my mental energy into, um, something that would help me heal. And the more I got into it, the more I loved it, the more I found out that it really did provide everything I was looking for. I picked up mountain biking and skiing. I was a skier for a long time, but I, I stepped my skiing up a lot and then took up mountain biking um, and, and downhill biking to... Um, kind of just give me that big distraction so that I didn't think about what I had going on on, you know, as far as my gender identity went and more, you know, how could I enjoy the body that I had?
1: How old were you, Aaron, when you transitioned?
0: Um, it's just, it's really hard to say. I think in a lot of ways, my transition started the day I realized that my body was misaligned with my gender identity. And in a lot of ways, it's the, the minute I, as a child, I realized I had a, you know, a something on my hands, you know, I think I began transitioning because then it became about either being stronger and strong enough to live a false life, or it was about being strong enough to come out as myself and kind of get get over it and, and love myself as I am and, and be myself. So, you know, wow. so I, I think it took me maybe a two or three decades to make that first step. So, a lot of not much progress on the outside, but a lot of progress on the inside. And then I I think the, you know, the first day I took, you know, I remember I got this bottle of estrogen and the prescription was written and everything. And that was maybe a little over four years ago. So decades, you know, working this out with myself and then certainly, um, it took me, you know, 10 or 15 seconds to come out to people, you know, so again, I I don't know the answer to that. I'm sorry.
1: It's a lifelong journey, it sounds like. Tell me a bit about your athletic endeavors because you you have some huge undertakings that I want to fill the <laughs> audience in on. Can you tell me a bit about the seven summits and how that began and where you're at now?
0: Yeah, for sure. So I started, you know, like like we kind of touched, touched on, I started using outdoor sports as kind of this way to you know, to heal and and distract myself. And then that turned into bigger pursuits and just developing bigger opportunities um, to connect with nature and sometimes more extreme ways to connect with nature. So, you know, I, as as I progressed, I stopped being happy inbound skiing. I wanted to be out of bound skiing or helicopter skiing or doing something that was that was bigger. I wanted my mountain bike rides to be multi-day or um, longer. And then I when I decided to transition, I realized that I might not be able to hold on to those things. So, you know, I came out to all my mountain biking friends and all my climbing friends. And, you know, by then I was traveling pretty extensively. So I had a very gendered passport. And, um, you know, I I figured, well, I'm going to have to give that up too. And a lot of countries that I've been traveling to for these sports opportunities might not be as open to um, me as an LGBT person that's visible. Mm -hmm and i decided you know i I'll, I'll give it up i'll do it just to be myself but you know 6 or 8 or 10 months after i started transitioning and, and finding support i realized that i had taken on some of the transphobia and some of the the media um, you know i had adopted that narr- that negative narrative that was expected of me and and i realized i it wasn't true so i started looking at how can i get back into those things that i developed and enjoyed those big mountain bike rides the big backcountry ski days. Um, is that possible? Will my friends still do it? There's a lot of trust in that relationship. There's a lot of, you know, if you're backcountry skiing with somebody, you know, and something slides, you have to trust that person, you know, so if people have these preconceived notions of me, are they going to go backcountry skiing with me? Will they travel around the world with me? What would it look like if I was faced with violence around the world? So once I started to transition and I realized life is going to be okay, and I've, I've got some friends and I've got these this new family um, and this, you know, the, these tighter knit relationships, I realized I'd be able to redevelop my outdoors endeavors and my traveling and get a passport that looked like me and felt like me and wouldn't get looked at, you know, in an unfavorable light when I tried to enter a different country. So I, I started slowly getting back into it. And before you knew it, I was very proud of myself and who I'd become. And I started thinking about what that meant as far as climbing went. And I started looking for people like me that had taken this path before me and I didn't find a lot of narratives. So I started just trying to create my own. And that's when I kind of decided I'd climb the seven summits, the highest peak on every continent. I had climbed a lot and mountaineered a lot before I transitioned. But now I was saying, I'm I'm not just going to do that. I'm going to do it to the highest point as who I am and be proud of myself for getting there. So... At some point when I realized it was all possible, I decided that it wasn't just possible, that that I needed to do it and be proud of myself for getting there.
1: Beautiful. And you had done – I remember you told me a story about Kilimanjaro because you had done it before your transition with the team. Can you tell me a little bit about the before and after? Because you did it again.
0: Yeah, I did it in 2011 with my former my girlfriend, my former partner. And um again very much hiding, not known to the world, desperately hoping not to be known to the world at that point. And um yeah, we had found this this provider through a connection we had through a mutual friend that, you know, knew somebody on the ground. So we went to this this person and they booked kind of a private expedition up Kilimanjaro if you will. They were the guide and the cook and myself and my partner at the time, and, you know, I had to negotiate in Africa all the paths of travel and kind of, you know, what we were going to eat and how it was going to look getting us up there and and all the ins and outs of it. In 2000, gosh, was it 2018, I think, is when I went back, 2017, 2018, to climb Kili again on my way through the Seven Summits again. I, my intent was to climb them all as my new self and be proud of who I am as myself. But I also know that Tanzania is not trans-friendly, and I was going by myself this time. So... I didn't really have the funding I needed to maybe do a bigger expedition or, or get it done kind of quick and dirty, if you will, and just call somebody to handle all the details. I, I contacted the same person on the ground, figuring seven years later, um, he had probably either, he wouldn't return my email or it would be a different team that he assembled. But um, when I arrived, it it looked a whole lot the same as it did the first time in two thousand and eleven. It was the same guy met me on the ground with a sign with my name on it. Wow. And this time it was it was my new name. So here I am, like faced with that person in that same environment.
1: and no recognition.
0: You know, he, so he was curious, you know, how would you get my name? You know, how did you come upon me without going through somebody else? And I said, well, my cousin, Aaron, you know, it's the same name, but you know, just a, a cousin. And, um, he said, yeah, I, I remember Aaron. And, you know, he told a, some details about me that, let me know that, you know, he remembered me. Yeah. So, you know, here I am figuring, okay, now he's going to assemble a team and it's going to be based on the people that, you know, aren't working on the mountain right now. So the, the porters and the guides and all that are going to be like this, this fresh team and they won't be the same people. But by the time he put together my team of porters, guides, and a cook, a lot of the people that were in my team were the same person. And now he was telling people that they had guided my cousin you know 7 or 8 years wow. before so i'm climbing up the mountain and everyone's like oh yeah you know like sharing memories and trying to remember who my cousin was and they're talking directly with me but again i'm also getting this feel as we're moving through that you know my my experience in tanzania negotiating for these services and and getting up this mountain and getting out there as a single female traveling alone is a lot different than my experience traveling you know with my former partner And, you know, presenting as male. So, you know, I didn't get the same, you know, it took two or three days to get that team longer to get that team together and onto the mountain when I was ready to go. This guy, Stanley. That was our contact had assigned a bodyguard to my team. And actually the bodyguard was the cook from our last expedition. So again, here I am, you know, last time I didn't have a bodyguard assigned to my, my expedition and I certainly paid for it this time. Wow. But, you know, I've got this extra person just making sure that I'm safe you know, I had asked to climb the same route that I did last time, but they, they didn't even listen, but they said, yeah, 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 you'll, you'll be on the same route. And then when I got out there, they, you know, they didn't think I'd ever climbed the mountain before. And I, I couldn't at this point say that I had, cause I was, I was just there on my, my cousin's advice, right. You know, instead of doing, um, Lamosho route, I ended up on the whiskey route, which they connect after three or four days, but, you know, there was always like this, this, um, my opinion kind of being secondary when I was in the mountain or my negotiating kind of came from a different place and kind of, you know, there was a lot of times when I was there before, when they'd, he'd say, okay, I'm going to go out and work on getting your food together. You can come to the grocery store with me. And this time they would pretty much just lock me in a hotel room and they'd say, we're going to go get your groceries put together. We'll come back and get you when we're done. You know, I wasn't really even allowed to be, you know, in the process and, and making the decisions It very much was kind of pushed pushed off to the side. So, you know, it was, it was kind of this exercise in um, gender inequity, I think, in, in a lot of ways, trying to just get Kilimanjaro working.
1: Can you tell me a little bit more about where you're at with your seven summits? So you've done four.
0: Yeah. So my way to be visible, I I think I've talked all around it, but my way to be visible is to stand the highest point in every continent and say, here I am. I'm proud of who I am. I looked for someone who had done that as a trans person before me and i never found a trans person. So my, my, my thing was to go stand in that high place and say, here's where the light is. There's no more shadows up here. I am who I am. And you you, you can see me, but I'm proud of this. And the year that followed, I think it was between 2018 and 2019, I climbed four of the seven summits. I climbed Australia, um, Europe, uh, which is Mount Elbrus, then I climbed Kilimanjaro, and then I climbed back in Cagua just over a year ago. So, and then we, we were fundraising for Denali for this year, but it didn't go off. So, yeah, I stood in the four of the seven highest uh, points on seven of the continents, Um as myself in this bid to become the first known trans person or a trans narrative that of someone standing on on the highest point being proud of themselves. So, that's my Seven Summits goal.
1: Amazing! And you've also developed a nonprofit.
0: Yeah, we started a nonprofit to fundraise to kind of highlight some of these outside narratives um, to support trans positive um, outdoor endeavors, just to kind of, again, create those visible um, stories of trans people successfully doing something. I, I think the benefits of the outdoors, whether it's because of inclusion or whether it's the actual physical endeavor, outdoor spaces and athletics is something we all learn so much from. And I want to open those doors to trans people. So I started the, the, the nonprofit in order to kind of help fund outdoor industry interest into trans projects and develop kind of some trans friendly spaces outside and outdoor sports.
1: Amazing. I'm so grateful, Aaron, for the messaging that you are putting out your representation, not only for yourself, but for the entire community. And I hope moving forward, you can get up on Everest, get that Denali and just keep spreading your light. I'm, I'm so grateful to have you on the show. And one other thing I wanted to ask before we wrap up here. What if there's one thing you could see more of in the world? What would that be?
0: I think right now, I think this COVID um, situation we're all going through is is a great chance to, to sit back and realize that, you know, when you look at kind of the narratives of the LGBT community, um, the, there's a lack of empathy. Really, has been what's what's affected us, and I think we're all realizing, kind of, you know even though our journeys might be different, that there's a lot that's similar. You know, being a trans person, I'm understanding, I think, what a lot of people are going through with the social isolation and the um, social distancing we're, we're going through now. I hope that when we get out of this, we remember that there are marginalized members of our community that um, feel that social distancing all the time. And we people are a little bit more accepting to reach their hand out and, um, and understand the power of a negative news cycle. You know, the AIDS epidemic in the 80s, you know, you can only imagine what it was like to be queer or gay in the 80s. I'm um, hearing that. It was um, certainly, it was demoralizing. That's kind of what we're all going through now. But I think the other thing that I hope the world learns a lot about is resilience and the fact that, you know, we might've felt strong before and we got knocked down a little bit here, but um, we can come back stronger and we can take kind of the narratives of people that have, have faced adversity and, and life-changing events like everybody can is now absolutely going through and realize that not only were we strong before um, we can learn a lot from what we're going through now and come back stronger and healthier and wiser. And and there's a bright future.
1: I hope so too. Well, Erin, thank you so much for coming on the show. If anyone's interested in following along with Erin, you can go over to Transcending 7 and follow along her journey as she completes the seven summits.
0: Amazing. Thank you, Lindsay.
1: Step Studios is a Los Angeles-based collective sharing unventured stories from around the globe of people who've stepped up to break barriers, shake expectation, and reshape our future. I'd like to extend a special thanks to our producer, Megan erez and our editor and mixer, Eric Carpo. To see this podcast and more, visit stepstudios.com slash podcasts.